0: Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben with another bonus episode in the Lean Blog interview series. It's June 7th, 2022. I'm recording, by the way, I mean, there's a bit of a lull in the traditional Lean interviews here. I'm recording an episode with uh, previous guest Rich Sheridan on June 16th. I'm doing, uh, recording an episode with a guy named Luke Shermer who is using process behavior charts in the context of Agile, which I think is really interesting. And then I'm also interviewing uh, Ken Pallone. He's the author of uh, a relatively new Lean book, and the title of that is Lean Leadership on a Napkin, an Executive's Guide to Lean Transformation in Three Proven Steps. So those w- episodes will be coming in the later part of june and going into july but uh today as i did uh, two weeks ago when uh, jamie flinchbaugh and i shared audio where we were talking about lean one-on-one training and, and should you skip it i'm sharing another episode here uh, as a bonus that's part of the just the lean talk uh, discussion series we we may do this just occasionally It's from episode number 27 of the Lean Whiskey podcast, where we started the episode by taking a deep dive into coffee, you know, making it and drinking it at home. Instead of talking whiskey, we were recording in the morning. So whiskey wasn't appropriate. Controversial statement there. Um, The weather was nice. So Jamie was sitting outside. So you're going to get to hear some birds chirping in the background like you're watching golf on TV. So by sharing the Just the Lean Talk segment here, we know a lot of you don't care about whiskey talk. You might just not want to hear it for different reasons. That's fine. You might not be interested in coffee talk. But Jamie suggested we share this segment from May of 2021 where we talked about lean in relation to inventory and supply chains. Um, We think it's uh, still a pretty relevant discussion. If if you want to hear the coffee talk, you can um, go to leanblog.org. Slash Whiskey Twenty Seven, where you can listen to or watch the entire episode there. So, our inventory talk does include a news story about you know ten million bourbon barrels that are quote unquote resting in inventory, but you know I think that barely qualifies as whiskey talk. We're not um, talking about drinking whiskey; we're talking about lean and inventory and supply chains. So, um, hope you enjoy uh, another edition here of just the lean talk uh, with me and Jamie Flinchball. All right. So we're going to talk about supply chain and inventory concepts here. There's a number of articles that caught our attention that I think are interconnected in different ways, like on the theme of inventory and supply chain. So just to throw a couple of them out there. There's been a lot in the news again recently that, uh, you know, the, the death of just in time. I think we've talked about this before. So this won't be the main point, but that's been back in the news again. Um, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about how, so supposedly, Toyota is putting the brakes on just in time because of some semiconductor chip issues. And the point I tried to make, and Jeff Liker wrote something really good on the LEI website, is that Toyota's not moving away from just in time. There have always been certain suppliers and certain components because of distance and variation where they would hold more inventory. Toyota is pragmatic. Not dogmatic, and and I tried, you know, I was trying to be nice and not super snarky, but I tweeted at the reporter from the Wall Street Journal who was basically a jerk about it. He was defensive. Well, I talked to Toyota. Okay, so you know more than Jeff Liker. Great. Good luck with that. So,
1: yeah, he, 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 I'm not sure who he talked to. Uh, I'm sure not the uh, the guy running supply chain uh, supply chain uh, design. Um, yeah. Uh, But I think that what was interesting is that the the first article that I think got us headed down this path because you and I have always gone back and forth every time you know uh, uh, the the just in time stuff comes up in the news it's 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 poorly reported and yeah lacks I actually saw one from the Economist who I Mm -hmm. I generally respect and it was all about the Suez Canal and right um and it was uh, I. You know, really kind of missed the point, and mm-hmm. you know, I will talk about you know healthcare supplies, but but the, the the since we weren't drinking whiskey, we still did have a whiskey
0: news article,
1: and <laughs> in, in yeah. some sense, which is which is the hun- the ten million bourbon barrels that are you know I, I think a
0: that, that is resting right that is aging, um, which they, I argue is record. a value added that's a value added process while it's in the barrel by definition,
1: right? Yes. It is it is value added now. Now what's interesting, just as a quick aside on this is that this is where, where you age the barrel mm-hmm. you know matters because mm-hmm. they, you know if, the, the, whether it's the state you age it in or we get to Jefferson's Reserve ocean where it's on a boat and sloshing around and that changes things, or if it's in the top floor of the wreck house or the bottom floor of the wreck house, where the temperature variation is different. Mm-hmm. but you know the, the value add in the winter, is different than the value add in the summer because the, the the differences in the temperature, but you know, the, the process of swelling and shrinking and sitting and interacting with the wood of the barrel is, is definitely changing the product by Mm -hmm. very and for the better form fitter function. It's changing form fitter function of the product Mm -hmm. by absolute definition value add. Um, But it's still inventory, It's still a lot of it. And you know, how
0: do you not, you know, how do you not overshoot the market years into the future? Right, that's the challenge here. Right. So the headline says nearly 10 million barrels resting in Kentucky. Is that good? Question mark. So I'm thinking of you know the statistician Don Wheeler, who one of his expressions is, "Without context, data have no meaning." So we get into the article, and it says the Kentucky Distillers Association released numbers, which we assume are accurate. That's not the issue here, right? There are 2.1 million barrels filled, and uh, so I think they filled two, billion, 2 million barrels in the last year. And there are a total of almost 10 million – so there's a total barrels, almost 10 million that are aging at some point. And it says it's a record number. So that sets a little context. It's a record number, but you know it says here when you talk about trying to hit market demand. Um, we, we can talk a little bit about system dynamics, as as we both learned uh, and studied at MIT, or people may know from um, the fifth discipline, Peter Senge, and, and books like that. It is really hard when you've got long time lags to predict anything or to understand cause and effect. So if you're trying to forecast demand four to ten years in advance. Good luck with that. And whiskey making, by definition, can't be a really agile supply chain. right? So this article says here, um, if you ask the distillery owners, the liquid in at least half those barrels won't be ready to sell for years. There's Mm -hmm. 15% that could be dumped, as they say, and filtered and bottled. And that really wouldn't be enough to quench demand right now, Right. So, what what do you do about um, you know down the road? And and they are trying to find this balance of, and I know Garrison Brothers has gone through this as there have been waves in their sales. the uh, the quote unquote beer game effect has hit Garrison Brothers, but you know you, you you look at your demand for coming months because that last leg of the supply chain of when do we bottle it and ship it you do have control over, so you can bottle it and ship it. But as we've talked about before, whiskey does not get better in the bottle. It just sits inert. Right. It's not going to get bad. So you don't have that supply chain challenge. Um, or they can continue aging it, which could make it better, but then to a point, maybe not anymore. So they, there are all sorts of things that they're, they're trying to balance. Um, so you know, someone else in, uh, in the article said, if anything, you, know, you say we've got 10 million barrels. They said, if anything, we're concerned about a lack of supply. We don't see consumer tastes changing or things slowing down i don't see evidence of an impending glut but that's all a guess right it's all a guess right because the time frame is you know it, it, are
1: are you looking at current trends well mm-hmm. you know it's very hard to predict tastes over a 10-year time horizon mm-hmm. which is kind of what we're you know at least talking about a five-year time horizon and what's what's interesting is that if you go back in time and, and look at the other end of this where there was an overshoot only because of demand dropping. So, you know, scotch in the eighties was not a popular drink. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, we, we go back to that time frame and before, and, and people didn't, you know, people didn't drink a lot at 21 year old scotch, mm-hmm. right. It was, it was just, it was, you know, 10 year old, 12 year old scotch. Um, I'm not a big meme guy, but one of my, my favorites is always, uh, no matter how cool you think you are, you'll never be as cool as Frank Sinatra stepping out of a helicopter with a glass of scotch. <laughs> um, well, I th-
0: well, and 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 so, so it's interesting you mentioned Frank Sinatra last night. Just interrupt real quick. We watched a documentary about Jack Daniels. Mm. Frank Sinatra was a Jack Daniels guy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so he
1: didn't drink, you know, he wasn't drinking like high end stuff. He, of course, he yeah. was drinking a lot of it, but <laughs> yeah. um, but he could afford whatever he wanted. And and didn't even have to pay for most of his drinks. But but if you look at, demand dropped significantly. People moved to different beverages. And this meant that this, the Scotch distilleries almost had to age stuff longer. <laughs> right. Which which in some ways led to the new culture of longer age stuff. Um, yeah. And, and, and so if if that hadn't happened if demand hadn't dropped so much that all this stuff ended up you know aging longer because they they didn't have a market to to bottle it, bottle it they ended up with more you know eighteen year old and twenty one year old and 15 year old stuff and and did that stoke uh lower the price of higher end stuff and then mm-hmm. stoke the the market's interest in in higher age stuff so you know hard to hard to know for sure but we, we certainly saw a huge, you know, multi-decade, really, at least a couple of decade market dynamic on the other end, not enough, not enough demand for the supply.
0: Yeah, because this article talks about the bottom falling out in the 60s when consumer interests shifted towards gin, vodka, tequila, and wine. And, you know, I think it's interesting in the U.S., uh, well, maybe, maybe we're just drinking more, wine consumption has increased dramatically. At um, all ends of the wine quality and price spectrum, but people are also drinking more whiskey. So um, yeah, I mean, you know, they, they, there's, there's just, it's hard to predict, right? They didn't predict, they probably didn't predict bourbon and now rye becoming trendy. They missed that. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how that gives them any more certainty about, you know, missing potentially the trend, the boom, Um ending so you know in in the past you know the risk is distillers go out of business and p- other people buy up their supply and then blend it into something or continue aging it or you know maybe we end up with the next pappy van winkle somehow
1: right well and 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 the what's very hard with this market dynamic is you look at where you stage inventory right so with, with whiskey again you stage inventory in barrels um you, you stage it in bottles um you stage it at retailers, mm-hmm. and then the the added dynamic is you stage it in the hands of consumers because more and more, and it was true of both wine and it's always been true of wine with cellaring. You know, you know I have I have bottles that I don't intend to open for another ten years, um, and those continue to age and get better. Those do continue to, a to age and yeah. get better, yeah. but but even with whiskey, people will they'll find something that they like, and then they buy a case of it, and they. In- tend to hang on to it, or they're hanging on to it to sell it later, which is a huge market. So, you know, we know statistically wine and, you know, I we, we know more about wine and whiskey purchases going up than we actually know about wine and whiskey consumption going mm-hmm. up, right? And so at some point, does there become a glut of inventory owned by consumers <laughs> That re enters the market and the, sec- the secondary market and, and competes with the manufacturers.
0: Right. Or if there were you know, uh, economic problems, um, people might buy less and they'll draw down their personal inventory. But like I saw, I think, uh, they're, they're a relatively small percentage of wine drinkers are holding inventory at home, whether that's on a shelf, a rack, a fridge, or a cellar like you know most people are buying wine to be consumed that day or the next couple of days which is kind of like the industry yep. generalization um but when you talk about the different stages so what i know of the story of garrison brothers um you know you 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 have the three by law the three tier distribution system you have the um you've got the distiller and then you've got the uh distributors then you've got the retailer, and then you've got the consumer. So this comes back to the, uh, the, the quote-unquote beer game, the famous yes. tabletop simulation, the MIT beer game, That it's brewer, distributor, retailer, customer, right? Yep. There's four yeah, stages yeah. and four, four steps to the supply yeah, chain. Brewer,
1: distributor, wholesaler, uh, a retailer. Was okay. the fourth yeah. one. And
0: yeah, then there's right. the consumer is a, a deck of cards, essentially, is the consumer yeah. at the far end. So the beer game, the 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 punchline of the game is like as you're playing it, only the retailer sees the little blip upward in demand, where demand goes from like two cases, whatever the units is, uh, two cases to four cases, and so the retailer reacts and increases their order back upstream, and those the the increase gets amplified as you go further back up to the brewer. So then, at the end of the game, you you ask the brewer to draw a curve of what they think happened to demand, and they'll draw something wildly oscillating, where it was it was not oscillating at the point of retail; it just went up once in that little blip um, because of poor communication, lack of visibility. Um, it, it, those swings get bigger and bigger upstream. So what happened to Garrison Brothers? Going back a few years ago, is that they were sell, they they sell through their channels. They have distributors, and there's inventory, and then it goes through the retailers. And they were forecasting their next year of how much they were going to bottle and sell, and then basically their orders for the year were zero, like quite literally zero, because the 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 supply chain was full, mm-hmm. and demand. I'm sure if you look at uh, demand for Garrison Brothers. I'm sure more was bought at retail and more was consumed by drinkers, but Garrison brothers had zero orders. And, and, and that creates a, that, that creates needless to say, huge business challenges when, and then, and then coming out, out of that, now they've had some boom years. So they're totally being hit by the beer game dynamic.
1: Yeah. And the, the, the beer game, uh, is a, a personal favorite of mine. Um, you know, I, I used to, uh, uh, before I even went to MIT, I I was at Chrysler. I, uh, we actually ran a a five day system or organizational learning course. Daniel Kim and Diane Corey. Daniel Kim from a systems thinking standpoint, I put up there with with John Sturman and Jay Forrester. Um, mm-hmm. and, and just I, I love Daniel; he's a fantastic mind. But they they came in and I was basically a co facilitator with them of this five day organizational learning. Uh, so there's like three or four of us that would help with this five day event. We would actually run at at Thomas Edison Inn up uh, in Port Huron. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and so we ran the beer game. We, uh, we, we often ran it in the evening with real beer being served <laughs> and that, that, that was not a good decision. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I ran it for several years. Uh, I, I then of course took it, uh, with systems thinking at, uh, um, at, at MIT. And then uh-huh. I, I, I use the simulation, use the design, use the, the beer game actually did some redesign of the, the, the delivery of it, but um, use that for 15 years. I ran the beer game uh, probably a couple hundred times. Uh-huh. Um, and, and, and so I, you know, there's a couple of favorite takeaways for me besides the, 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 the supply chain aspect. You know, the, the, there's two aspects of the the system design, but also the human element. Um, and and I like to distinguish. We talk about systems dynamics, which is what Jay Forrester uh-huh. was, and systems thinking. I like to think of systems thinking is drawing pictures. Systems dynamics uh-huh. is doing the math, right? Because uh-huh. <laughs> right? there's yeah. some real math here. But the impact of delays on on the system you know the combination of lack of transparency and delays on the system but then the human element is the decision rules the heuristics that you use to make decisions within it is is always fascinating i have so many stories of people choosing really bad heuristics Mm -hmm. um, in that system largely from not understanding the systems or the impact of delays um but it's going back to, you know, we'll come, I'm sure we'll come back to Toyota, but it's, you know, even their heuristics, right? When are we just in time? When are we not? Mm -hmm. When are we an exception to the rule? When are we doing something different off, you know, an abnormal condition versus normal condition? Those are all decision, decisions that are made by heuristics that Mm -hmm. are well informed.
0: Yeah. And it's tough when, you know, you have time delays, and lags, and and even just having a slow supply chain. So the one thing that these articles, not not just the Wall Street Journal, but other publications, get just they 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 completely misunderstand stand just in time. They think it means zero inventories, and somehow that you can do just in time replenishment from halfway around the world, from literally a slow boat from China. And one thing that was really fun, interesting about. This Jack Daniels documentary is uh, they actually followed from barrel to bottle to shipping container. There was a shipping container with more than 2,000 cases of Jack Daniels that was on a truck. Then it was on a train going to the port of Charleston, South Carolina. It went onto a huge shipping uh, boat. That went down through the Panama Canal, and it went all the way to New Zealand and then to Australia. And then they showed the two cases being put on a truck, a pickup truck, driven to some bar in a tiny town in the outback. If that's how you're getting your Jack Daniels, 10,000 miles, 35 days, that's not just in time delivery. No. You can't possibly think of that as being – and they didn't describe it as that in the documentary, but – that's just, that's, that's a different kind of supply chain altogether. And there are going to be times where they sell that bottle and then they run out and they can't get more for who knows how long. Right, right. And that's, you know, I, I, I uh, well, using the beer game, right, come back to decision
1: rules. You know, we we actually had teams just by design, we would we would give them the heuristic of only ordered exactly what is ordered of you, uh-huh. which is actually a... And not ideal. It's by no right. means an optimistic rule because right. you actually are in a small backlog the entire time. You're always there, behind. And there's some amplification still. Still some amplification, mm-hmm. but it is muted because everybody uses the same rule, right? And the rule is designed not to have overreaction, and and it is one of the best performances you can have uh, by following that rule. But it's not the optimal outcome, mm-hmm. right? right. And, and And the, one of the main reasons for for these things are you know even your decision rules is well, it depends on what order of magnitude mm-hmm. right so just in time, over a ten to twenty percent variance in demand mm-hmm. yeah. is very different than a two to four hundred percent, or in the cases of things like like masks or mm-hmm. um, uh, you know other things that people have have not just pandemic. Healthcare-related pandemic stuff, but you know, office furniture, home office furniture, Mm -hmm. and laptops and webcams and things Mm -hmm. like that. You know, sometimes a a one thousand or two thousand percent increase. Well, just in
0: time isn't meant to operate in those conditions. I think it's meant to operate, like you said, you know, that ten to twenty percent demand swing, and with local short lead time suppliers,
1: right. Yeah, with with the ability to react to the the signal change, right? Over again, over what duration? You know, five percent in a short duration, maybe twenty percent over a longer duration. Mm-hmm. But at some point, and it, again, it depends on the supply chain. You start talking about well, new capital, mm-hmm. right? Right. So so you can't make more vaccines, masks, uh, you know, other things without buying more capital mm-hmm. and that capital isn't, in, you know, I can, I can maybe hire a new shift, right. If I didn't already have that, right? Right. I can maybe, you know, work on driving some waste out. I can crank up mm-hmm. uh, the demand signal a little bit, like, but I can't buy more capital. Right. And even, you know, toilet paper is time. an example. Mm-hmm. It takes time. Toilet paper is you had the capital, of manufacturing plants that made commercial toilet paper was different equipment (laughs) and different capital equipment Uh that made residential toilet paper. So so it's not a very flexible design.
0: Yeah.
1: It wasn't a flexible design and capital couldn't be redeployed rapidly and it wasn't, you know, yes, there was hoarding without question, Uh but the shortage wasn't in toilet paper period. It was in residential toilet paper. Right. Because that's where the capital was over uh, overextended, and so again, time horizons is a huge impact on these supply chain designs, and and just in time mm-hmm. that you know I think the media you know the media needs to understand as they as they write these stories that uh, that that help fuel lack of understanding of
0: how mm-hmm. supply chains work. Yeah. So when you talk about, it's, I didn't know that about uh, toilet paper, different equipment, hard to switch over from one to the other or impossible to switch over. And this is where uh, you, know, you look at not just supply chain decisions, but product development and architecture decisions. Toyota and other automakers moving toward more general platform architectures and being able to build a wider variety of different vehicles on the same assembly line becomes Mm -hmm. a huge advantage. If consumer demand for some reason shifts away from crossover (laughs) type vehicles and trucks to sedans, I I mean, that may not happen for a lot of reasons. But let's say if that were to happen, um, you know, the Toyota plant in San Antonio can build different types of pickup trucks. I don't know how easily they could retool that over to Camry's. You know, so they have Right. I think more flexibility than they did in the past, but probably still not like this really. I guess we're trying to figure out what's the optimal level of flexibility. On you had more time in the auto industry than I did. Is, it,
1: yeah, and 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 so you you look at both subcomponent simplification as well as you know platform simplification. You delay decisions as long as possible so that you have more flexibility up to the last minute even you know if you look at this is one of my favorite examples was wire harnesses which are big and bulky and and expensive yeah and if you look at all the features on a car you might actually need like 50 some different wire harnesses in a lot of cases we found it was more cost effective just to you know reduce the number of wire harnesses so we didn't have the wrong amount Mm -hmm. and and then you just didn't You just didn't plug in the feature that somebody didn't order, right? Sure. Like if they were smart enough, they could get in there and just plug it in and they'd have this feature they didn't (laughs) pay for. They can't get to it. Yeah. But they can't get to it without some, some work and, and some effort. Um, But it it does come at a cost in, in certain cases. So the airbag, right? The Takata, is it Takata, right? That was one of the companies. Mm -hmm. There's no reason to have 47 different types of airbags, right? Just like way back when I was a Chrysler, mm-hmm. we found we had 17 different black seat seatbelts. Well, right. And, and I don't know what was worse, the fact that we had 17 or the fact that we only got down to three Yeah, <laughs> in, our, in our reduction. But because ev- a whole bunch of different companies and a whole bunch of different platforms use the same design, once mm-hmm. they had a defect in design that they didn't really figure out. It affected a lot yeah. of things.
0: Yeah. I mean, General Motors was, um, I think, uh, for a while, notorious about, um, you know, individualizing components because you have engineering groups and product development groups that want to put their stamp on something. Um, there's all kinds of organizational drivers, but they, you know, they, they would start consolidating to, you know, start thinking across an entire product line of a General Motors portfolio back in the day when you had a wider range of brands. Why does, like, under the hood um, the the cap that goes on the windshield wiper filler. Why does that need to be different on a Saab versus an Oldsmobile versus a Hummer? Just to mention a few dead brands, but um, yeah, why, why have that differentiation? If you think look at Toyota and um, Lexus, there are I'm sure a number of things that the the driver would never notice and would never care about where the part is identical on a Toyota Avalon versus the equivalent Lexus. But if they were to start getting too cheap and have the Lexus buyers say like, oh, these, these knobs and controls in the interior, this is starting to feel like a Toyota. No offense. It's not that Toyotas are cheap, but relatively speaking. Right. Like G- GM would get criticized for using, um, you know, they they they'd say, oh, like you pulled from the parts bin – the Chevrolet parts bin for these Cadillac parts and you're trying to position Cadillac as a premium and it doesn't feel very premium. Like that's part of the trade off there, but it comes back to value is defined by the customer and perception and, and use functionality versus um, appearance and touch. And, 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 so, yeah, I think when it, when it comes to, you know,
1: product design and how it affects these supply chain dynamics, Uh, an interesting, you know, uh, guideline or rule of thumb or heuristic is, you know, always, always simplify where possible, Mm -hmm. right? But not at the expense of customer value, right? Right. So talk yourself into the added variation rather than have to talk yourself out of it Mm -hmm. as a, as a general rule. Um, But, but then you know you also have supply chain design, and and you already talked about these you know these long supply chain designs which are inherently inflexible, right? Now if you're again yeah, you're you're bottling stuff and and you're trying to meet a a year's worth of demand plus or minus you know forty percent because you don't you know the product doesn't spoil on the shelf, okay, right? Um, but if you do have a if you do have expiration of orders or expiration of product, uh, you, you need to be more flexible. Um, I, I think one one of my favorite uh, interesting twists on a supply chain design was a, a company doing a uh, a product um, uh, designing a product that they did make in China. Um, you know they they it was it was injection molded. It was lots of components. It was um, uh, you know, filled out, uh, in a, in a box. And so it was one of these that, you know, typically got made in, in, in somewhere in Asia. I don't really remember mm-hmm. if it was China and it was for a season, which meant they had to kind of get it right. But, uh, what they did was they, they, they made their 80% factory, uh, order for, from China and then save twenty percent of the demand for U.S. production, hmm. so they could kind of like see where demand really was, yeah. And then, yeah. and then dial in at the last mm-hmm. minute locally, mm-hmm. right? And so that supply chain, you know, there's lots of different ways to do it, but people underestimate the the ability to respond and and how time affects mm-hmm. the, the the ability to respond to the market.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think there are. There are systems, right? So just in time and the Toyota production system is not just one piece, right? So there are all these different decisions and aspects of the company that go hand in hand. You you, can, you get in trouble if you try to copy just one part of the system. Um, but you know, I think of like you know, when it comes to differentiation and what have you. Like I'm looking at devices I have with me. Uh, iPhone. There's an iPhone 12 Pro. I think I'm quite certain that the iPhone 11, or at least going back a couple of generations, the Pro and the regular were slightly different sizes. And okay. you think, why? So they, I'm sure it's a huge advantage. The 12 and the 12 Pro are now the exact same size. So that means advantages when it comes to producing cases. There's greater greater economies of scale when it comes to that. I'm sure there's greater economies of scale when it comes to the production of cases, right? And you can see, you know, with the phone insert, I've got three cameras, which makes it one of the things that makes it a pro. The, the, the iPhone regular has two cameras, but I'm sure that inset is the exact same size, right? So that one part of the component is different, but the overall size of it is the same, which I'm sure at some point somebody said, wait a minute, why, why the hell do we have two slightly and like not big enough or small enough where it would make a difference to the consumer. It was just annoyingly different. Yeah. And, you know, and Apple, you know, has a history of
1: not, not worrying about, you know, uh, whether the customer uh, (laughs) can find the right case or any of those things. They kind of worry about their own optimization. Now now Steve Jobs used to say he wants all of his his entire product lineup to fit on one conference room table. He wanted simplicity. Mm -hmm. He didn't want, you know, he, he would be, I think, driven crazy by some of the product proliferation that's that's happened within Apple, and whether it's right or yeah. wrong is is irrelevant. It's just inconsistent with his strategy, and he wasn't really thinking about supply chain dynamics, but um, uh, more about you know designing it what's right for the customer, and then just declaring that it that it's right. Um, but you know. Apple has a very different, you know, they're not just in time, right? They know they're, they're big on release day demand, right? I big mean, burst. I don't, yeah. I don't know what the percentage is, but the percentage of phones that are sold on release day is significant. Um, mm-hmm. And perhaps less significant than it used to be, but you know, with lines around the block for people to get the latest product, but they would, they would try to produce all this stuff and get the inventory staged and, and be ready and Mm -hmm. then all in one day demand boom is is uh is is wiped clean and then they continue to sell until they they surge the market again but their their supply chain isn't designed we could we could argue whether that's lean or not but it's intentional Mm -hmm. um it's certainly not just in time because it's an intentional supply chain design
0: yeah And you make me wonder um, what you were saying about the wire harnesses and um, I'm I'm looking at my MacBook Pro, which is a version of the MacBook Pro that has two Thunderbolt ports on each side. There's a total of four. The less expensive MacBook Pros only have two on the left-hand side. The case, the aluminum body... The form factor is exactly the same. It makes me wonder if the motherboard on the inside is exactly the same, but it's just a matter of they drilled two more holes in the aluminum to make those right. ports <laughs> accessible. Well, and you'll see. Um, I don't know.
1: Yeah, these are these are design questions, you know, because somebody other than Apple would drill them out on all the units and then put plugs in, right? <laughs> um, Apple would say, absolutely not. But you see that with cars all the time. It's like, right. what are those two circles there? Oh, that's where hmm. the license plate holder goes for states that have a front license plate, or yeah. that's where you hook up the uh, uh,
0: the bike rack or something like my, that. I, I think um, one other example, my vehicle, when you go to put uh, gas in, um, there's obviously the gas nozzle. And then there, to the left, there's a hole. That's kind of like covered up. And I think that would be for the diesel version of it. That would be where you add the, um, the fluid, the special fluid yeah. that you also have to occasionally add for diesel emissions.
1: Yeah. So they just, yeah, yeah. just covered it. Right. And, and and this is, you know, again, the, the, the simplicity of your product it leads to the simplicity of your your supply chain design. You know, my, my wife used to drive a Honda pilot, which now my, my two older kids share, um, uh, that, that word share, I could have a whole podcast on that. (laughs) But, um, but the, uh, I, when, when we bought the Honda pilot, there was three different trim levels and there were like four dealer options, which are basically things that they were pre drilled for. And they could just, you know, plug in the fog lights or plug in the, the, you know, pop on the the roof rack. Yeah. And and that was it. And so when we, when when the dealership didn't have the, the specific unit we wanted, there were three at other dealerships within, you know, within the region. And so it was a piece of cake. Mm-hmm. Now when I order my my German car, <laughs> the 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 product option list from the factory is so complex. I would ask the I would ask the uh, the salesman about a feature. He's like. I don't know. I don't know what that is. I haven't seen that. It's <laughs> so complex. That even the guy selling it doesn't understand it. And, um, and that's why they have then a, you know, a, a four to eight month delay on mm-hmm. getting you what you want. And maybe again, I'm, I'm that German manufacturer. Maybe that's part of the value add. They're trying to optimize value. Um, but it leads to other impacts in the supply chain dynamics including massive delays, whereas that Honda uh, is not trying to optimize value. They're trying to optimize uh, convenience, perhaps, and, and, and cost for that, that customer that can get what they want
0: when they want it. Mm-hmm. And the final thing I want to bring up about supply chain dynamics, the other end of the beer game going from glut or from, from shortages is going to glut. So a year ago, it was very difficult to find masks, hand sanitizer, cleaning wipes. Go to any grocery store now and you see basically buy one, get one free, buy two for the price of one. Like they can't give some of this away. And that's only what we're seeing at the very front face of the retail channel. I can only imagine how much there is now sitting uh, in inventories um, that, that, that's now impossible to move.
1: Yeah, I mean, every, you know, and this was one where the supply chains did change. It wasn't buying new capital. It was redeploying capital that other people owned into the market, right? So every, every vodka and gin producer um, started making, you know, hand sanitizer mm-hmm. or other, other sanitizer uh, uh, products, alcohol-based sanit- sanitizers. Um, every clothing manufacturer um, made masks. I actually have I don't want to say i'm I'm not really embarrassed to say, uh, but uh, I have Brooks brother masks. Um, mm. they they actually weren't very they were extremely cheap uh, and and I was <laughs> oh, no. I was ordering something <laughs> anyway. And they just—they almost came along
0: with the order, so I. It, yeah. was, it was it was early on in the process, but it's bad bad for the like brand I, if they're cheap or scratchy or uncomfortable or. Yeah, something. they
1: weren't. They weren't bad, and they're not branded, right? They don't. You yeah. know, it's not like you know. I've seen Louis Vuitton <clears throat> masks. I'm like, wow, okay, <clears throat> that's pretty obvious. But yeah, there's masks everywhere. We have uh, way more masks at this point than we could use. And in part, trying to find the right ones. Like I had a hard time finding masks that wouldn't fog my glasses mm-hmm. and uh, ultimately failed. Right? In the winter, when working hard, I, I basically had to go to anti-fog spray for my glasses. I never mm-hmm. found a mask that really prevented it. I know you can use tape and stuff, but um, yeah. anyway, these things have massive oversupply. Now, there's the inventory. There's also the capital, right? So, yeah, hopefully... Capital was capital allocation was shifted, but hopefully new capital wasn't spent mm-hmm. um, like, oh, let's let's go put uh, three new factories online to build hand sanitizer um, because that capital will never get properly used um, and will be a tremendous waste mm-hmm. in the supply chain overall. Yeah. Good for
0: equipment makers and good for some equipment. But, makers,
1: sure. Yeah. Um, which, which many of them are very busy sh- shifting to trying to react to either the good economy or just shift uh-huh. to, uh, shifting demands in certain markets. A lot of equipment manufacturers are significantly delayed right now. Um, yeah. a lot of equipment you got to wait 18 months for. Um, yeah. but yeah, it's, it's, it'll be, it's interesting, uh, how much hand sanitizer might be, uh, might be sitting on shelves. Is it is it a twelve month supply or mm-hmm. a on the, on the same su, mat, order of magnitude as the market right. uh, as the the yeah. undersupply or demand increases?
0: Is there a thousand percent uh, oversupply? Twelve twelve month supply based on what demand rate? Because like now that I'm a couple of factors, you know I'm I'm vaccinated. Um, we've learned a lot more about surfaces. Like You don't have to be so worried about touching surfaces and picking up virus and getting yourself sick. Um, I try to wash my hands, but I use far less hand sanitizer. Like I've always had a pump bottle uh, the last year in the cup holder of the vehicle. Um, just habit, getting in the car, pump, pump, hand sanitize. I'm not yep. doing that as much, and I probably don't need to be doing it as much. And when that thing is empty, I don't know if I, I don't know if I'm going to replace it. Maybe I'll leave one in the glove box for more of a just in case instead of daily use purposes. Um, Yep. So, you know, usage is down and inventories are up. And maybe some of that can go into a strategic stockpile for uh, God forbid we hopefully don't have another pandemic uh, in our lifetime.
1: Right. But it's it's interesting. You know, stockpiles are interesting because they require expense to manage as well. Right. Mm -hmm. And depends on what it is. Risk. Mm -hmm. Right. We have a we have a strategic oil reserve. We have a strategic um, uh, milk uh, reserve, all powdered milk. Right. But Mm -hmm. it's it's uh, it it could supply us in in extreme conditions. And that's that's old laws that you go back to World Wars. Cold War Um,
0: especially. Yeah.
1: But yeah, but but you you know I know you did a podcast with Dr. Burns from MIT, and you guys talked mm-hmm. a little bit about you know you know the, the the whole idea of reserves and and how do we stockpile stuff. Well, you know we probably remember we had a ventilator reserve, mm-hmm. uh, but the contract to maintain the equipment right. expired yep. and didn't get renewed, and so then we 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 owned. uh uh, ventilators but they didn't work right
0: and And there's risk of how much there's all kinds of stuff
1: around all kinds of risk. and so it's it's not a simple answer and and again it depends on order of magnitude you know do i do i need to stockpile a two-month supply 12-month supply five-year supply
0: and under what demand yeah. Uh, and at what cost? Because you think it's a five year supply and then demand skyrockets. And now it's a six month supply. Exactly.
1: Right. So so, you know, we saw that with ventilators, right, where we, where we thought yeah. we, we had a strategic supply. Mm-hmm. It turns out not so much. And,
0: uh, yeah, you well, know, what,
1: what would happen with oil if, if, if there was now again, we've, we've shifted the oil production in a very different way. But Preceding that, you know, if there was a, a a world war, right, what would happen to the Strategic Oil Reserve? And
0: Yeah. And, well, uh, well, you look at the responsiveness, you know, a year ago, almost exactly, there was this huge push for General Motors and other companies to start building ventilators. And I think by the time those ventilators were built, medicine was realizing, ooh, okay, no, we shouldn't be throwing people on ventilators right away. Yeah. And so I wonder how many of those ventilators really ended up being put to use. Like clearly there are some patients who end up on a ventilator, but they, 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 they started doing less and less of that. So I think then the demand for ventilators had dropped. Right. Thank you, General Motors. Thank you for your service. But you know, uh, to what effect? Yeah. And, 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 and so, you know, lots of people
1: uh, again, tried, you know, again, and gin companies make, hand sanitizer what we knew at the time it it was a good decision right i mean if 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 using hand sanitizer might have a positive impact on on stopping some spread Mm -hmm. it was worth making extra hand sanitizer and getting it out there i I don't i don't think that was a bad call based on the science we knew at the time but the long-term outcome was we learned more and uh and the demand changed and um uh, and so, I, you know, it, it, so now we have an oversupply, and, and mm-hmm. it's, it's uh, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, we have to be thinking about in supply chains all the time, mm-hmm. the 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 design of the product, the design of the supply chain, and uh, the decisions, the decision rules, the heuristics you use within that, yeah.
0: right? and how you react.
1: Um, along the way.
0: And so we'll link to some of these different articles and, you know, that, that podcast I did in my lean podcast series with Dr. Jonathan Burns and um, some other things that you might want to read, even if we ended up not touching on it in depth. So, you know, normally when we do podcasts in the evening um, starts to get, you know, sleepy time here, my (coughs) stomach, I'll admit my stomach is growling. So I'm ready for (laughs) breakfast because all I've had so far is coffee. Um, so maybe we'll we'll sort of wrap things up on uh, a fun question note. How about that? Or, or closing fun question yeah. as we yeah, try to I, do. So, Absolutely.
1: And, so, and uh,
0: I, I was going to say also, like you were starting to break up a little bit. And I was going to say like, you're running out of Wi-Fi, which is not how that works. So I'm going <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah. Well, that's a, that's another supply chain, go.
0: uh, <laughs> uh, dynamic that doesn't go, go always re- have a, a rapid
1: change, right? Yeah. Lay new, uh, lay new pipes out uh, yeah. for your, go, your, go, go your refill internet. your,
0: wi- go refill your wifi. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but so I think the fun question we were going to talk about, I'll throw it to you first, Jamie, um, uh, besides coffee, do you, what's, what's your favorite thing that you experience in the morning in terms of routines or just something you enjoy?
1: Yeah, so so I, I do um you know I, I do love sitting out here in the morning when I can. I'm really glad the weather's changed. Um and, and I'll I'll enjoy the morning birds. I'm sure some of those uh some of the bird sounds came through uh yeah came through my mic, but uh um, soothing. Yeah, it's I don't think that's uh it's not like traffic uh, or, or, or car <laughs> sirens like I had a meeting on, on Friday with. Um but uh but yeah, I, I love I mean, along with my coffee, I love uh I've actually learned to to significantly reduce my news consumption and, and more importantly, compress it to, you know, a a batch essentially. Mm. Right. So I, I, I basically read very neutral, uh, Uh news sources in the morning, uh, almost always the economist and then usually Reuters. Um, but I will, when I can sit out here with my coffee, usually my espresso, uh, at that point, and and catch up on the Economist and mm-hmm. um, uh, and I, I I just feel like it opens up my mind to what's going on in the rest of the world. It's not very few of the news articles are things I need to react to, but it connects me to the bigger world, um, and sort of make sure my mind is sort of big picture rather than little picture. And uh, you know, just my next meeting. Right? It's like no, no. Here's. <laughs> here's the world I belong to. And it, it, it's a, it's a big part of my ritual at this point. Um, and, and my, uh, uh and I, 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 enjoy the heck out of it.
0: Yeah. I have always been a newspaper reader. Um, even as a kid, uh, in college, I got the, the paper, the Chicago Tribune delivered, uh, to the mm-hmm. dorm and, uh, read that very regularly. Um, I'm now in a iPad, news consumption mode. So, um, I, I, try to minimize my cable news yeah. time of any, any of the channels. Um, just a lot of arguing and like, I, I feel like I, I get a better read of the news from different sources. So I'll read on, on the iPad, a range of, um, you know, New York times, wall street journal being in LA, I've been reading, uh, subscribe to the LA times mainly for mm-hmm. local news coverage around, you know, the, the pandemic and things now are getting better, knock on wood in, um, LA County. But, you know, when, when I'm in Los Angeles, we're really fortunate, um, to be in uh, a condo that's close enough to the water, um, close enough to the, 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 one Marina where, uh, you know, in the morning as, as the sun is coming up and like, especially on a clear morning, um, the 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 ocean looks very, very blue when the sky is very clear. Like on a cloudy day, the ocean looks like the sky. Um, but one thing that's been a real blessing in this year is uh, being able to enjoy Monday morning looking outside at the water. That's um, something I realize that's a real privilege and a blessing to be able to enjoy. But um, I'm thankful for that. Cup of coffee, iPad, and a view.
1: Yeah. Sorry. No, a view of of any sort, but, uh, you know, I, I I don't live on a lake, but, you know, any chance I get to be, get some, a morning still lake Mm -hmm. is, is, you know, just this clear crystal, you know, still lake that's highly reflective. Those are, those are fantastic. So, uh, I, I can, I can appreciate that.
0: Yeah. Uh, when we were in Orlando, I would walk around, um, Lake Eola, which, you know, downtown lake. Um, it was a sinkhole at some point <laughs> in Florida. Uh, they turned it into a lake with a beautiful fountain. And like you said, on a really still water morning, some of the downtown buildings and things just reflecting off, there's something about looking at water. I don't, I don't know what, what, what in our DNA makes that enjoyable, but that seems to be something people enjoy. It, 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 it does. Very
1: peaceful and in another way reminds you that you're part of a much, much bigger world.
0: Good thing to be reminded of. All right, so let's wrap of, things so. up, I guess. All right. So our, thank you for listening. Um, you can find all past episodes at leanwhiskey.com. You can spell whiskey with a K-E-Y or uh, a K-Y at the end, leanwhiskey.com. That'll forward to my website. If you would rather go to Jamie's website, it is. Yep. Yeah, you can find me at jflinch.com slash leanwhiskey. Uh, you find the same, same feed of podcasts. And uh, you can, you know, the main places you can find us, of course, include Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Uh, It's now called Google Podcasts. I'm going to update our standard here. It used to be (laughs) called Google Play. Um, You can find us in all the main podcast directories. And they now say instead of subscribe, the language they use is follow. So please follow. And then we'd also ask you to. Yeah, follow us, rate us, review us. Um, you know, we really
1: appreciate these small gestures. It helps us, but it also helps other people find it. So we appreciate just a, a small gesture of a, a rate, right review or a follow-up.
0: Top of the morning to you. Um, if, if, we, if, we had done, if we had taken just a quick digression before we, before we end, if, if we – because, you know, I wonder sometimes, like, you know, framing this as lean whiskey, like, I don't know, I mean, maybe that scares off some listeners who say, well, I'm against whiskey – I don't care about whiskey. If we had really framed it as a lean coffee podcast, we might have run out of things to talk about regarding coffee. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. As only, I think, <laughs> I think this was—I don't want to say the deepest
1: dive, um, but uh, that, that I've ever had on coffee. But uh, I would definitely, yeah, I would definitely run out. Um, But the the wonderful world of whiskey is a a much, much more interesting rabbit hole to dive into.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So until next time, thanks, Jamie. Thank you. See ya. See ya.